0: This is Matthew Holton of the CBC, speaking from England. I came back this morning from France. France, where our assault formations are ashore, and now fighting like wildcats to hold the bridgeheads, to hold them against German generals and German armies, who know that in the next few days they either throw us into
1: the sea or lose the war. In June
2: 1944, nearly 50 years ago, Canadians were in the thick of one of the biggest battles of all time. D-Day, the invasion of France, reclaiming occupied Europe from the armies of Adolf Hitler.
1: I went in with the Canadian assault formation. I've come back to tell you how those superb British and Canadian assault troops went almost contemptuously through minefields and curtains of machine gun fire to clear
0: the beaches and rush the pillboxes and kill the Germans with the bayonet
3: Everything is happening simultaneously. Everything is happening at the same time. There is no, I'm first, you're second, you're third. Everybody is first.
1: It's surprising how little you know about what's going on around you. You live in this little cocoon, more or less. And as it moves, you you take your cocoon with you. That's all you're really worried about is right there. Like what happens over there don't matter. What happens over there doesn't matter. It's just right here, you.
2: Half a million men took part in the assault on the Normandy beaches on June 6, 1944. 30,000 were Canadian. And among them was a little known outfit from Saskatchewan, the Regina Rifles. A thousand men nicknamed the Farmer Johns. Naive young farm boys who quickly turned into some of Canada's fiercest and most successful fighters. The regimental march was the Kiel Row. This is the story of D-Day, seen through the eyes of four men from the Regina Rifles, men from the prairies who lived through this all-out assault on the beaches of Normandy, and the battles to liberate the towns and villages of France.
0: There were some young children that were greeting us uh, near the beach with flowers. And uh, I've always remembered that. They were standing there with the sort of stunned looks on their faces, trying to smile. They seemed to be welcoming us, but on the other hand, they weren't quite sure whether they were, how safe they were, you know. I just smiled at them. That's all I could do.
2: Gordon Brown, Peter Matway, Roy Preddy, and Jerry Molson. D-Day was their initiation, their first taste of war. It was an experience they remember with pride, with sadness, and with horror. The Farmer Johns and the D-Day campaign. Their story is told by Sean Purpick in Regina.
4: In June of 1940, Peter Matway was a young man in his early 20s, a rugged farm laborer from the Regina district. He didn't follow the war too closely, but the army wanted men. He answered the call wearing all the clothes he had, bib overalls, flannel shirt, and a straw hat. The recruiting officer was blunt about what would lie ahead.
3: He looked at us and he said, boys, he says, you're joining the Army, he said, but I can't offer you much more than death.
1: We all looked at each other and said, that's some introduction. Patriotism didn't enter into it for about 99.9% of us. That was the last thing, except that all our everybody else did it in World War I. So we might have loot in World War II. After all, it was only going to last six months.
4: Also in the recruiting line that day at Regina's old armory was Jerry Molson. Jerry Molson had survived the depression by leaving the family farm to fell trees and lumber camps and to lay track on the railway. The money was good, but it wasn't always there. In the army, you knew what you were getting.
1: Yeah, and you got a steady dollar ten a day
4: that you could count on. Jerry Molson was fit and healthy, but that didn't seem to matter much.
1: Basic requirement was if you're warm to the touch and could move on your own, you were in. We had one guy in the Regina Rifles that he lasted about six months with a glass eye.
4: Another country boy from outside Regina, Roy Pretty, knew one recruit he describes as a drunk from Moose Jaw.
5: He even got to be an officer, but he was always drinking. And he could never get in because they couldn't get a urinal test from him with all the beer that was in him. So he was down in town one day trying to get him a test and finally another buddy of his come in he said here you use this bottle. He took that bottle up, that got him in the RV.
4: <laughs> Gordon Brown wasn't a farm boy but he was from the country. He grew up as the son of a small town station master. He was 21 when war was declared in 1939 and had little enthusiasm for it. But he was a patriot, and as a college boy he was destined for the officer corps. The army allowed him to indulge one of his passions.
0: I had a Harley Davidson in England, a big uh, heavy one, uh, for riding on the on the highways, and I had a Norton for cross-country. You could jump over things and do all sorts of stuff. Oh, it was. Uh, I was still only 24, I guess, at that time. 23 or 24, and so I was i was thoroughly enjoying it.
4: Within a year, the Regina rifles would embark in high spirits from Halifax on the troop ship Empress of Russia. Peter Matway decided the ship's 100-foot mainmast was just too tempting. He climbed to the top, he said, to wave goodbye to Canada. Cheering him on was Roy Pretty, who had less fun when he got down below. He found the stench of a crowded troop ship on that voyage unbelievable.
5: Oh, God, we're just we sleep in hammocks going over, hung from the ceiling. And uh, somebody's head was at your feet and your head was at somebody else's feet, you know. And it stunk like Billy be darned. Stinking feet and farts and God knows what all.
4: <laughs> After a 14-day voyage, the Empress of Russia docked in Britain. The Regina Rifles arrived saddled with an insulting nickname, the Farmer Johns but they soon decided to flaunt their Saskatchewan roots. They started to call themselves the Farmer Johns. For the next several years, they trained. They started to build a reputation as tough and efficient soldiers who showed a lot of initiative. So much initiative, in fact. In one training exercise, Peter Matway put on a woman's dress to help capture a mock enemy headquarters. It seems the tone was set by prairie farm boys used to solving their own problems when something went wrong on the back 40 the Farmer Johns were chosen as one of the lead battalions in the D-Day assault on Normandy. In the last few days before the invasion, members of the Farmer Johns whiled away the time listening to armed forces radio. The Germans' use of this tune, I Double Dare You, threw a scare into Allied intelligence.
3: I double dare you to sit over here I double-dare you to lend me
1: your
4: ear. German radio rewrote it as a parody, daring the Allies to invade occupied Europe. They added new lyrics. I double-dare you to venture a raid. I double-dare you to try and invade. Whether or not the Germans knew, preparations continued in the sealed, heavily fortified camps. A massive military operation was ready to be launched. Roy Pretty remembers a scary briefing from his commander on the run-up to D-Day.
5: He told us what was going to happen and how it was going to happen. And he said, we had three bridges to seize. He said, if there's only three guys left in the morning, I want one of you sitting on each of those bridges. <laughs> kind of scared the shit out of us a bit.
4: To take their minds off the attack, young soldiers played poker, bingo, and shot craps. Jerry Molson was being cleaned out that night.
1: I was flat broke. I'd even I'd even lost my uh, French money. I, the, the issue just to go in on, I'd lost everything. I had nothing on the land, not a thing. Nobody would have killed me for my money.
4: With great excitement, Gordon Brown loaded his landing craft, but he soon became bored thanks to a delay caused by bad weather.
0: Uh, and it was a terrible storm. There was a, an awful wind and rain storm. For, fortunate in a way that the German aircraft couldn't see us anyway because of heavy cloud cover.
4: June the 5th, finally, after a day, a break in the weather, the ships left their hiding places in a hundred English ports and headed into the Channel. When Peter Matway woke up on dawn of June 6th, the sun was shining, the sea was calm. He thought he was still dreaming.
3: I could not believe what I was seeing. It was thousands of ships, and there were all types of them. It was just one great, big, long roar all morning.
0: We realized as the time approached for H-hour, the landing of the Regina Rifle Regiment, uh, they were going to be among the first to land. Uh, The Germans would have been wakened by this time and they would be ready, uh, as ready as they could be, given the shelling and the pounding that they were going to take. Uh, We were observing all of this, of course, and uh, and watching it closely and listening and... uh, and uh, waiting for our message, the message for us, to go in.
4: The invasion fleet moved out of port, but its destination was still a military secret, even to the troops on board. Finally, halfway across the channel, Gordon Brown was allowed to break open sealed orders for the attack and show them to his men.
0: I, it was as new to me as it was to them. And uh, it, it was a great excitement, absolutely enormous excitement that this was, what we, this was where we were going. Uh, we were going to Normandy. They had maps, the complete map
5: of of the beach where we were landing, houses and toilets and streets and everything that's the way it was. And each company knew where they had to go and what they had to do when they got there.
4: But all the careful preparation that Roy Pretty's small group made was blown apart when their landing craft hit a mine.
5: All of a sudden, the biggest crash you ever heard in your life Bodies were flying in the air for 30, 40 feet. And then you, the back of the boat's got a about a four feet by six feet long platform that the engine's on. And the white, we guys in the back of the boat scrambled up onto that. And the front end of the boat was gone. About two-thirds of the boat was gone. One-third was left.
4: On board his landing craft, Gordon Brown saw the aftermath.
0: The skipper and I were able to see some
4: bodies uh,
0: as we uh, we were attempting to land, um, who I I recognized.
4: Jerry Molson's landing craft was steered by British sailors. They were utterly determined to get through to the beaches with their load of Canadians. One of the two sailors next to Molson was shot.
1: This guy got hit, and this fellow down here, he just rolled him off into the water and climbed up behind the machine gun. He didn't seem to affect him and He just pushed his buddy into the water and climbed up and commenced firing.
4: Meanwhile, Roy pretty was still on the water, counting up how many of his fellow soldiers had survived the blasts that had wrecked their landing craft.
5: Nine left out of forty. And uh, then the damn boat started drifting back out to the ocean, because the tide was going back, you know, it takes you out. We couldn't see a body that we knew. <coughs> but anyway, we uh, we went back out to the ocean. And uh, that day I jumped on nine different boats. And was, one was sinking and you'd get on a better one and bigger one and a bigger one. And sometimes we tore boards off places and paddled at little things that we had.
0: I jumped into the water uh, to test how deep it was and uh, I got the first carrier to drive down and, and uh, he was he was able to get down uh, the ramp and almost disappeared in the water, but he got to the beach. He, he pulled up, you know, he was pulled out of the water and up onto the beach. And we only lost, uh, in taking all the vehicles off, we lost one gun and one brand gun carrier that uh, the wheel of the gun caught the chain on the ramp and flipped it over into the water. But that was the only vehicle and gun that we lost. We got everything else onto the beach.
4: Further up the beach, Jerry Molson, saddled with an 80-pound radio set, leapt from his landing craft, running. He charged with the rest of his company across about 75 yards of machine-gun swept sand. The men paused at the seawall. It was long enough to send an important message.
1: Yeah, we were Nan Red, our company. Hello, Sunray, this is Nan Red. We're on the beach. Just repeat it twice and then start and then keep on running. And they all went too. they like. Colonel Matheson knew who'd landed and who hadn't.
4: At first, conditions on the beach were chaotic for the Farmer Johns. Several commanders were dead or wounded, along with dozens of their troops. One company, along with Roy Preddy's commander, had been blasted out of the water by mines. Another company was pinned down by cannon and machine guns of a fearsome German pillbox. British Royal Navy men, called beach masters, directed the troops to their positions. Jerry Molson saw one coolly trying to bring order to the chaos.
1: And he was walking up and down, directing people here and directing people there, no gun, no nothing, no tin helmet, no nothing. Happy as a king. Mm-hmm. He was a Brit. Big grin, everything else. You go here, you go there. And as far as he was concerned, there was no war on, he was running the show. Mm-hmm. Probably his big moment.
0: I found Dunk Grosh, who was the company commander. He had been wounded badly in the leg. I helped him up the beach a bit because the tide was coming in. And uh, getting closer to him, the water was getting too close to him, so got him up onto the beach a little further and I helped uh, a cousin of mine who was uh, a young soldier in A Company who was badly wounded. I was uh, terribly sorry. The sorrow was the greatest feeling at that stage.
4: Gordon Brown went off to see the regiment second in command.
0: He was pacing around, sort of walking around uh, and he didn't stop walking, and I uh, I was talking to him, and I said, why don't you, why don't you stand still for a minute? And he said, uh, look, Gord, there's snipers around here, and if you stand still, you're dead. Uh, so I said, well, okay. He said, uh, get the vehicles off as quickly as you can. So I started back toward the beach, and uh, a sniper missed me by about a quarter of an inch. Well, The first
1: guy that I really realized was dead was a good friend of ours, and I knew when he went down, that he was dead. That was the, actually the first guy that I really knew was was dead. At A Company beside us when we were going in, they had a lot of guys killed right on the beach. But that didn't focus because they weren't my company.
0: Experienced troops would have been no good. Experienced troops on a on an operation of this kind would have been cautious, and they would have been much more cautious than we were because we didn't know. We weren't experienced troops. We had never suffered the way that experienced troops have. And being cautious on D-Day would have been a very bad thing. (laughs) The the one thing you needed, that's the last thing you needed was caution on D-Day.
4: By now, hours after the battle, a pall of gun smoke combined with a thickening sea mist. It gave an eerie look to the regiment's invasion beach, but it wasn't the sights as much as the smells that Gordon Brown remembers.
0: The, the smell of cordite, uh, the smell of shell uh, a material explosive. Uh, the sea itself lends a certain kind of, sort of smell that isn't normal here to us prairie people. Uh, also somewhat uh, an odor that we weren't accustomed to, and it, it, it turned out to be a German, the smell of German uh, camouflage equipment. I, I, I don't know just how to describe this, but it was a kind of a... A sharp smell, and I smelled it very often from then on uh, when we were fighting.
4: By early afternoon, most of the Farmer Johns had fought their way off their beaches and into the fishing village of Korsul. Jerry Molson, the radio man, and his comrades stormed through the village and were soon heading up the road to the next town. Gordon Brown, meanwhile, was ordered to move a column of trucks and Bren gun carriers out of Korsul up to where the fighting was.
0: I had to cross some tennis courts. And I was a tennis player, and I didn't like the idea of ripping up these tennis courts, but the only way I could get out of there was to go across the courts, and uh, so I did.
4: While the other troops were settling down for the night, Gordon Brown was carrying on. He was shuttling back and forth on a Norton motorbike between Corsul and the newly established battalion headquarters up the road, checking on who needed vehicles. As he rode his bike through the dark, he saw something.
0: And I got about a a kilometer when I saw a light on the side of the road. I thought, oh boy, we're finally meeting somebody that some of our guys are coming up from the beach. And I pulled up to this light It turned out to be an automobile uh, with light on inside. And I, it was a small automobile and I pulled up alongside of it in the dark there and there were four German officers uh, looking at me out of the windows with a startled look on their faces. And I was I had a hold of the the car, with my motorcycle sitting there idling, and looked at them, and they were looking at a map. And I, I of course, I left. I, uh, I turned the gas immediately. <laughs> I didn't have my pistol out. I couldn't take them prisoner. I'd like to, but they had uh, machine guns. You know, I could see that they had schmeisers with them. So I, I left in the dark, and uh, well, either I'm going the wrong direction, or somebody's something's going on here. And I went about another. Uh, Kilometer. When suddenly I ran into a column of German troops marching the same direction I was going. In the dark, I almost actually ran physically into the back of them, my the motorcycle, but I missed them. And uh, I, I sort of rode alongside of them, and I thought, well, they were had long great coats on and helmets and so on. <laughs> I thought, well, I'll see if I can work my way past them. Nobody paid any attention to me. I just kept on riding. I went up to the front of the column. There was about 110 German soldiers, as it turned out. And uh, I was just going to burst past them, you know, and take off at high speed. When I caught in the dark, I saw that there was a Canadian officer in front of these troops. (laughs) He had a pistol in his hand. I said, my God, am I glad to see you. I said, this time I was in a state of panic. Uh, And he said am I glad to see you? He said, I've got these 110 guys and one pistol.
4: Gordon Brown helped put the prisoners in a temporary POW cage. Then he decided to go visiting. He picked up a friend from the Royal Winnipegs on the next beach down. After what was probably the most hellish 24 hours in their lives, Gordon Brown and his friend blew off a little steam.
0: He, he got on the pillion seat of my Norton and, and we went for a tour around uh, Kursul in the dark two or three o'clock in the morning, and firing our pistols at some German airplanes that were, that were over us. But uh, um, that was my day.
4: D-Day itself was a battle for the beaches, but the D-Day campaign would go on for weeks as the Allies tried to expand their bridgehead in Normandy. By the afternoon of their second day in France, the Farmer Johns supported the campaign by digging in at a town only a few kilometers from the coast, a place called Brettville. The Germans had to get them out in order to have a hope of driving the Allies back into the sea. The Farmer Johns wouldn't budge, and Brettville would become an epic story of tank battles, fearsome barrages, and close combat with fanatic Hitler youth. But the first morning after the invasion opened for Gordon Brown anyways with a moment bordering on farce.
0: I went into uh, Brettville, and I pulled up the battalion headquarters, and, uh, and somebody said the colonel would like to see you. So I went in to see Colonel Masson, and he was in the house. The French lady was cooking him breakfast. And uh, he, he was right at home, and he was uh, quite pleased with the way things were going. You could hear machine gun fire around and rifle fire, but uh, everything seemed to be under control there. And he was having eggs, and we hadn't seen eggs for months and years you know, in England. And uh, he said to the lady, Could you cook uh, Captain Brown uh, some eggs? And, She said, oh, yes, she'd do that. So he said, would you like a a glass of cognac? I'd never had any cognac in my life, so I said, well, yeah, okay.
4: (laughs) For the Farmer Johns, Brettville is a major event and is still remembered today as one of their proudest achievements. Brettville was a town placed strategically on the main road. The Farmer Johns were to take and hold Brettville and cut off the German communication lines. When they got there, their commander established headquarters in a house in the middle of town. The troops fanned out and dug in just beyond the town limits. Their slit trenches were in the green fields and in the hedges and behind the walls of a large and sturdy stone French farmhouse set in an orchard. For tactical reasons, the Germans liked to attack around dusk. The first night the attack came, but it was beaten off. The second night was much worse. Peter Matway will never forget the German tanks going right through the Farmer John's lines. We were chewed up pretty badly,
3: okay? We were chewed up pretty badly then, okay? Our uh, anti-tank weapon, which was was a six-pounder, and you might as well have had a water pistol against those tanks.
4: Peter Matway heard the tanks coming through the dusk. Then he felt them, large, black, and very hot as they crossed his slit trench your heart stops and you
3: say to yourself this is it it's like being pounded into the ground with a blinking scudge hammer you were just wishing the hell he didn't stop and start and, and wants to make a turn in ten seconds you're buried
0: there was one went right by me, I was looking through a hole in the wall and one, a big panther went right by it's about ten feet away from me I could see the in the dark, I could see the muzzle of the Barrel of the gun as it went by us, and uh, they didn't know we were there in the orchard with them. And suddenly I heard this machine gun fire in the in the orchard. So somebody had fired on the Germans, and uh, of course the tanks came to life, and the war was on. And uh, they burned everything down, and they uh, except the house, they uh, smashed the uh, the orchard completely. They, ran over vehicles and men and everything else back in there. It was a a tragic night.
4: After a vicious all-night firefight, Gordon Brown says the only thing that saved them was the dawn. The Nazi tank crews were fearful that the dawn light would allow Allied bombers to see them. Sure enough, Gordon Brown and his men started to hear planes coming in from England. The Germans roared off through a wheat field to take cover among some nearby trees. But Gordon Brown's relief was short-lived. Soon, the Germans renewed their attack, this time with infantry soldiers led by the fearsome SS commander, Kurt Meyer. And they weren't just SS soldiers. They were fanatical Nazi teenagers from Meyer's superb 12th SS. That baby face. They
3: don't know that they're gonna grow a beard and they're gonna to have to shave it. They tie themselves to trees and everything else here, dig themselves into the, into the ground. There was no way you could get them out and the rest you shot
4: them.
5: They would not surrender.
4: The German boy soldiers advanced towards the farmhouse, singing as they went.
5: Good luck at young, blonde German boys, beautiful boys looking. But they they thought it was an honor to die for the Fuhrer. And when you're fighting against indoctrinated people like that, they don't give up. They didn't use a cover of smoke. They just come in standing up and they thought the bullets were going to bounce off them. No, we're stupid the way they come in. It was a
4: shame. The Germans were being mowed down, but there was more of them, and they kept coming. Gordon Brown's situation was desperate.
0: Our guys, unfortunately, were falling asleep. They were in such a state of exhaustion that they were falling down, and some of the NCOs had to go around slapping slap them and wake them up to keep them firing, you know? We were so tired, so exhausted, people falling down. Uh, we, we'd gone into a kind of a, a dream world, really, in which uh, there seemed to be no end to it.
4: Suddenly, Brown's field telephone rang.
0: And I thought it was somehow some miracle that somebody had co- was, was uh, phoning us, and uh, slowly a German voice, <laughs> a voice with a German accent, came on, and said, hello Englishman, are you lonely? And I knew that the guy was behind our position because in other words, we're encircled, you know. Finally, I was just going to the front wall. I was gonna become a machine gunner and uh, the signaler called me and said, I've got through to battalion headquarters. <laughs>
4: It was Gordon Brown's commander offering artillery support. The trapped officer accepted it eagerly. And within one minute, the German attack was being torn apart by the big Canadian guns. It was a fierce barrage.
0: And then uh, absolute dead silence. Everything went absolutely dead. You know, just the smoke, the pall, the, uh, the thing was over. The guys were cheering and uh, I knew that the battle was over.
1: Everything that moves in front of you is a potential enemy. And it doesn't matter who or what it is. It doesn't matter. It's a potential enemy. And that's the way war is. It's not, oh, that. maybe a woman, it may be a kid, it may be this, it may be that. If it moves, kill it. Because then you know it can't shoot back. And it's, that's the way it is and it never, it hasn't changed for thousands of years.
4: The Farmer-Johns would battle on in Europe for another 11 months as one of Canada's elite fighting units, but before they left Normandy, they would cement their reputation. They did it by carrying out a mission other Canadian units tried and failed to do. They captured Kurt Meier's heavily fortified SS headquarters, the Abbey of Ardennes. Once out of Normandy, they fought their way through Belgium and ended up for battling of possession of towns along the Dutch-German border. By the spring of 1945, nearly half of the 1,000 Farmer Johns who landed on D-Day were dead. Many others had been wounded, physically and psychologically. But Gordon Brown, Jerry Molson, Peter Matway, and Roy Preddy were alive. When it came time to go home, it was aboard the Empress of Russia, the same ship that they arrived on. Roy Preddy remembers a much more comfortable crossing.
5: That was heaven coming home. Each guy had his own bunk. And another guy and I, Carl Kumpf, we sat out every day on the south side of a smokestack, and it was cool. But that smokestack was warm. It was beautiful. Then we get in a train to come home. Back where we started, marched up into the exhibition ground, one of those sheds out on the south side close to the track. Maybe it's gone now. As soon as I saw my folks, I made a beeline for them and hugged them, kissed them. I come home it's harvest time, but my hands are so bloody soft, soft softer as a woman's hands. Get blisters on my hands, my brother helped me out a lot, but I did run a stoop wagon. And that was it.
4: Gordon Brown has been back to visit the old battlefields a few times in the last 50 years since D-Day.
0: Every time I go, it's it's horrendous, uh, the sorrow. Uh, when you go to the c- cemeteries, particularly, uh, and uh, and I, I'm not sure I'm going to go there this year. Uh, it's it's a. I guess I'll have to. I must, I suppose. But in many ways, it's it's you know. It bring back memories that uh, you'd rather not have.
4: As he fought in the battle for Normandy and in the regiment's battles that would follow in Belgium, Holland, and Germany, Gordon Brown was surrounded by scenes of horror and sadness, scenes he hoped he would never see again. Like many of his fellow soldiers, Gordon Brown is not sure the emotional scars are healed even half a century later.
0: I have a bit of a Obsession with the war, which uh, I think fairly large numbers of of the fellows uh, have that. If you get them into a group, you find that they revert, you know, completely to talking about some of those experiences. Uh, Some people can't talk about it; others can. Uh, Some people don't want to talk about it at all. I don't think we appreciated. Even until you know until recently, the extent to which we were affected uh, mentally, by 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 the experiences. you you can you can understand it now, but at the time we thought we were good. we were fine. We were you know, we'd get over it. Uh, but uh, it hasn't been that easy.
2: Gordon Brown decided he would go back to Normandy this year. Peter Matway will also be there, plus about a dozen other surviving members of the Farmer Johns. Roy Preddy and Jerry Molson will mark the D-Day anniversary at home with their surviving comrades at a special regimental banquet in Regina. The Farmer Johns, the D-Day story of the Regina Rifles, was produced by Sean Purpick and Steve Wadhams.